Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Exodus 32 When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in the ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people, as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp, and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water. 
and made the people of Israel to drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, Why did this people do to you, that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. They gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about three thousand men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now, go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Daniel chapter 3 King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was sixty cubits, and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship the golden image 
shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your king, out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come out here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies, rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The Small Catechism the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. The large catechism, the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. What this means. You shall have me alone as your God. What is the meaning of this and how is it to be understood? 
What does it mean to have a god? Or what is a god? Answer. A god means that from which we are to expect all good and in which we are to take refuge in all distress. So to have a god is nothing other than trusting and believing him with the heart. I have often said that the confidence and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. If your faith and trust is right, then your God also is true. On the other hand, if your trust is false and wrong, then you do not have the true God, for these two belong together, faith and God. Now I say that whatever you set your heart on and put your trust in is truly your God. The purpose of this commandment is to require true faith and trust of the heart, which settles upon the only true God and clings to him alone. It is like saying, see to it that you let me alone be your God, and never seek another. In other words, whatever you lack of good things, expect it from me. Look to me for it. And whenever you suffer misfortune and distress, crawl and cling to me. I, yes I, will give you enough and help you out of every need. Only do not let your heart cleave to or rest on any other. This point I must unfold more clearly. It may be understood and seen through ordinary counterexamples. Many a person thinks that he has a God and everything in abundance when he has money and possessions. He trusts in them and boasts about them with such firmness and assurance as to care for no one. Such a person has a God by the name of mammon, i.e. money and possessions, on which he sets all his heart. This is the most common idol on earth. He who has money and possessions feels secure and joyful and undismayed as though he were sitting in the midst of paradise. On the other hand, he who has no money doubts and is despondent as though he knew of no God. For very few few people can be found who are of good cheer and who neither mourn nor complain if they lack mammon. This care and desire for money sticks and clings to our nature right up to the grave. So too, whoever trusts and boasts that he has great skill, prudence, power, favor, friendship, and honor also has a God, but it is not the true and only God. This truth reappears when you notice how arrogant, secure, and proud people are because of such possessions, and how despondent they are when the possessions no longer exist or are withdrawn. Therefore, I repeat that the chief explanation to this point is to have a God is to have something in which the heart entirely trusts. Besides, consider our blindness, which we have been practicing and doing under the papacy up until now. If anyone had a toothache, he fasted and honored St. Apollonia. If he was afraid of fire, he chose St. Lawrence as his helper. If he dreaded bubonic plague, he made a vow to St. Sebastian or Rocchio. There were a countless number of abominations, where everyone chose his own saint, worshipped him, and called to him for help in distress. Here belong such people as sorcerers and magicians whose idolatry is most great. They make a deal with the devil in order that he may give them plenty of money or help them in love affairs, preserve their cattle, restore them to lost possessions, and so forth. For all such people place their heart and trust elsewhere than in the true God. They look to him for nothing good, nor do they seek good from him. So you can easily understand what and how much this commandment requires. A person's entire heart and all his confidence must be placed in God alone and in no one else. For to have God, you can easily see, is not to take hold of him with our hands or to put him in a bag like money or to lock him in a chest like silver vessels. Instead, to have him means that the heart takes hold of him and clings to him. 
to cling to him with the heart as nothing else than to trust in him entirely. For this reason, God wishes to turn us away from everything else that exists outside of him and to draw us to himself, for he is the only God. It is as though he would say, whatever you have previously sought from the saints, or whatever things you have trusted in money or anything else expected all from me, think of me as the one who will help you out and pour out upon you richly all good things. See here you have the meaning of the true honor and worship of God which pleases God, in which he commands under penalty of eternal wrath. The heart knows no other comfort or confidence than in him. It must not allow itself to be torn from him, but for him it must risk and disregard everything upon earth. On the other hand, you can easily see and sense how the world practices only false worship and idolatry, for no people have ever been so corrupt that they did not begin and continue some divine worship. Everyone has set up as his special god whatever he looked to for blessings, help, and comfort. For example, the heathen who put their trust in power and dominion elevated Jupiter as the supreme god. Others who were bent on riches, happiness, or pleasure, in a life of ease elevated Hercules, Mercury, Venus, or other gods. Pregnant women elevated Diana or Lucinia, and so on. Everyone made his god that interest to which his heart was inclined. So even in the mind of the heathen to have a god means to trust and believe. But their error is this, their trust is false and wrong, for their trust is not placed in the only God, beside whom there is truly no God in heaven or upon earth. Therefore the heathen really make their self-invented notions and dreams of God an idol. Ultimately they put their trust in that which is nothing. So it is with all idolatry. For it happens not merely by erecting an image and worshipping it, but rather it happens in the heart. For the heart stands gaping at something else. It seeks help and consolation from creatures, saints, or devils. It neither cares for God nor looks to him for anything better than to believe that he is willing to help. The heart does not believe that whatever good it experiences comes from God. Beside this, there is also a false worship and extreme idolatry, which we have practiced up to now. This is also still common in the world. All churchly orders are founded on it. It concerns the conscience alone, which seeks help, consolation, and salvation in its own works. This conscience imagines it can wrestle heaven away from God, and thinks about how many requests it has made, how often it has fasted, celebrated mass, and so on. Upon such things it depends and boasts, as though unwilling to receive anything from God as a gift. For it wants to earn or merit heaven with abundant works. The conscience acts as though God must serve us and is our debtor, and we are his liege lords. What is this but reducing God to an idol, indeed an apple god, and elevating and regarding ourselves as God? But this point is a little too clever and is not made for young pupils. Let the following point be made simple. Then they may well note and remember the meaning of this commandment. We are to trust in God alone and look to him and expect from him nothing but good, as from one who gives us body, life, food, drink, nourishment, health, protection, peace, and all necessaries of both temporal and eternal things. He also preserves us from misfortune, and if any evil befalls us, he delivers and rescues us. So it is God alone, as has been said well enough, from whom we receive all good, and by whom we are delivered from all evil. 
So I think we Germans from ancient times name God more elegantly and appropriately than any other language from the word good. It is as though he were an eternal fountain that gushes forth abundantly nothing but what is good. And from that fountain flows forth all that is and is called good. Even though we experience much good from other people, whatever we receive by God's command or arrangement is all received from God. For our parents and rulers and everyone else, with respect to his neighbor, have received from God the command that they should do us all kinds of good. So we receive these blessings not from them, but through them, from God. For creatures are only the hands, channels, and means by which God gives all things. So he gives to the mother breasts and milk to offer her child, and he gives corn and all kinds of produce from the earth for nourishment. None of these blessings could be produced by any creature itself. So no one should expect to take or give anything except what God has commanded. Then it may be acknowledged as God's gift, and thanks may be rendered to him for it. As this commandment requires, for this reason also the ways we receive good gifts through creatures are not to be rejected. Nor should we arrogantly seek other ways and means than what God has commanded. For what would not be receiving from God, but seeking for ourselves? Let everyone then see to it that he values this commandment great and high above all things. Do not regard it as a joke. Ask and examine your heart diligently, and you will find out whether it clings to God alone or not. If you have a heart that can expect of him nothing but what is good, especially in need and distress, and a heart that also renounces and forsakes everything that is not God, then you have the only true God. If, on the contrary, your heart clings to anything else from which it expects more good and help than from God, and if your heart does not take refuge in him but flees from him when in trouble, then you have an idol, another God. God will not have this commandment thrown to the winds. He will most strictly enforce it, in order that this may be known that he has added a, a terrible threat, and b, a beautiful and comforting promise. This promise is also to be taught and impressed upon young people, that they may take it to heart and hold it. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. These words relate to all the commandments, as we shall learn later, but they are joined to this chief commandment because it is most important that people get their thinking straight first. For where the head is right, the whole life must be right, and vice versa. Learn, therefore, from these words how angry God is with those who trust in anything but Him. And again, learn how good and gracious He is to those who trust and believe in Him alone with their whole heart. His anger does not stop until the fourth generation of those who hate Him. He says this so that you will not live in such security and commit yourself to chance like people with brute hearts who think that it makes no great difference how they live. On the other hand, his blessing and goodness reach many thousands. He is a God who will not overlook that people turn from him. He will not stop being angry until the fourth generation, even until they are utterly exterminated. Therefore, he is to be feared and not to be despised. He has also made this known in all history, as the scriptures abundantly show and daily experience still teaches. For from the beginning he has utterly uprooted all idolatry. Because of idolatry he has uprooted both heathen people and Jewish people. To this day he overthrows all false worship, so that all who remain therein must finally perish.
proud, powerful, and rich men of the world, who surpass the Persians in wealth, are still to be found. They boast defiantly of their mammon. They utterly disregard whether God is angry at them or smiles on them. They dare to withstand his wrath, yet they shall not succeed. Before they are aware of it, they shall be wrecked, with all in which they trusted. All others have perished, like this, who have thought themselves more secure or powerful. Such hardheads imagine that God overlooks and allows them to rest in security, or that he is entirely ignorant or cares nothing about such matters. Therefore God must deal a smashing blow and punishment to them, so that he cannot forget their sin unto their children's children. In that way everyone may take note and see that this is no joke to him. These are the people he means when he says, those who hate me, i.e., those who persist in their defiance and pride. Whatever is preached or said to them, they will not listen. When they are rebuked, in order that they may learn to know themselves and make amends before the punishment begins, they become mad and foolish. They rightly deserve wrath, as we see daily in bishops and princes now. But as terrible as these threatenings are, so much more powerful is the consolation in the promise. For those who cling to God alone should be sure that he will show them mercy. In other words, he will show them pure goodness and blessing, not only for themselves but also to their children and their children's children, even to the thousandth generation and beyond that. This ought certainly to move and impel us to risk our hearts in all confidence with God, if we wish all temporal and eternal good. For the Supreme Majesty makes such outstanding offers and presents such heartfelt encouragements and such rich promises. Therefore, let everyone seriously take this passage to heart, lest it be regarded as though a man had spoken it. For you it is a question of eternal blessing, happiness, and salvation, or of eternal wrath, misery, and woe. What more would you have or desire than God so kindly promising to be yours with every blessing and to protect and help you in all need? But unfortunately, here is the failure. The world believes none of this, nor regards it as God's word, for the world sees that those who trust in God and not in mammon suffer care and want, and that the devil opposes and resists them. They don't have money, or favor, or honor, and besides can scarcely support life. On the other hand, those who serve mammon have power, favor, honor, possessions, and every comfort in the eyes of the world. For this reason, these words must be understood to speak against the appearance of such things. And we must consider that they do not lie or deceive, but must come true. Reflect for yourself, or investigate and tell me, those who have used all their care and diligence to gather great possessions and wealth, what have they finally gained? You will find that they have wasted their toil and labor, or, even though they have amassed great treasures, they have been so dispersed and scattered. So they themselves have never found happiness in their wealth, and afterward it never reached the third generation. You will find plenty of examples in all histories, also in the memory of aged and experienced people. Just watch and ponder them. Saul was a great king, chosen by God, and a godly man. But when he was established on his throne, he let his heart wander from God and put his trust in his crown and power. Then he had to perish with all he had, so that not even his children remained. David, on the other hand, was a poor, despised man, hunted down and chased so that he did not feel his life was secure anywhere. Yet he had to survive in spite of Saul and become king. For these words of the promise had to abide and come true, since God cannot lie or deceive. 
Just let not the devil and the world deceive you with their show, which indeed remains for a time, but finally is nothing. Let us then learn well the first commandment, that we may see how God will tolerate no overconfidence, nor any trust in any other object. We will see how he requires nothing greater from us than confidence from the heart for everything good. Then we may live right and straightforward and use all the blessings that God gives, just as a shoemaker uses his needle, awl, and thread for work and then lays them aside. Or we may behave like a traveler using an inn, food, and bed only to meet his present need. Each person may do this in his calling, according to God's order, and without allowing any of these things to be his lord or idol. This is enough about the first commandment, which we have had to explain at length, since it is of chief importance. For as said earlier, where the heart is rightly set toward God, and this commandment is observed, all the other commandments follow.